Within each of us, there is an intense need to feel that we belong. This feeling of unity and togetherness comes through the warmth of a smile, a handshake, or a hug, through laughter and unspoken demonstrations of love. It comes in the quiet, reverent moments of soft conversation and in listening. Good morning, Autumn Ridge Church. Good morning to you who are here in the auditorium. Good morning to you who are at home. My name is Otis Hall. I'm one of the pastors here today. Welcome to week two of our neighboring series where we're taking a really deep look into what it means to be a good neighbor and, and how we live out the commandment that Jesus gave us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as we're going through the series, we have a thesis and this is it. The real question isn't, who is your neighbor? It's, are you a neighbor? And today, we're going we're gonna to look at an account in Jesus' life found only in the book of Luke. We're going to look at the Zacchaeus story. And I know some of you are thinking, this is, this is a kid's story. It's what you learn about in Sunday school. There's a, there's a song about it, right? But, it, and it would be really easy for us to argue that this this story about Jesus has a really small footprint in Scripture. I mean, it isn't as intense as Jesus' interactions with the demon-possessed man, and Zacchaeus' life doesn't have the grand arc of Paul, who was a major persecutor of the faith and then wrote a large portion of the New Testament. But, but in reality, this, this story about Jesus and this man has, has amazing points in it. It, it, is a, it is a moment about Jesus seeking and Zacchaeus seeking and walls and, and how they affect our neighbors. The, this moment in the book of Luke is full of deep wordplay and, and history, which, which for me makes it no less a miracle than the feeding of the 5,000 or the, the healing of the paralyzed man because this is the miracle of what happens with a repentant heart, with a changed heart. It, it is also for us in the context of learning about neighboring, it's a reestablishment of this. No, that's, that's not Greek, that's not Hebrew. And for you computer people in the room, we're not about to talk about Linux versus Unix software systems. So you know who the computer people are, they laughed. But this is an African word that when translated into English means humanity. And it's sometimes even more expanded into this definition. I am because we are. And this idea of Ubuntu has been woven into African culture and, and in the time of Jesus for a really long time. And, and, and I want to introduce you. This is Desmond Tutu. He is a South African archbishop and theologian. And, and he says this about Ubuntu. One of the sayings in our country is Ubuntu, the essence of being human. Ubuntu speaks particularly about the fact that you can exist as a human being in isolation. It, it speaks about our interconnectedness. We think of ourselves far too frequently as just individuals, separated from one another, whereas 
you are connected. And, and what you do affects the whole world. Ubuntu recognizes the humanity of all as created in the image of God. You see, I told you that this, this idea has been present in Africa and, and even in the rest of the world for a really long time. And this, this thought comes from an African proverb from a, from a tribe called the Tlosa. And this is the proverb. It says, Ubuntu, Umgamtu, Nakbanye, Bantu. And it, it's loosely translated into this when it's translated into English. Each individual's humanity is best expressed in relationship with others. Can you imagine that? I mean, we talk about community, but can you imagine what it means if we were to take that idea and expand it to everyone? Your existence, your humanity, your part in the kingdom of God is connected to everyone, everywhere. You see, this was easy for people in Jesus' time to understand. It's also easy for people in Africa to understand because community is the lens through which they see everything. It's not, not like we are prone to to think about our individual success and the success of our families. They thought about the community as a whole and what one did affected everyone. And so the, the question that I have is this, how much community do you have outside of your circle of friends? Because if it's true that God created us to be in community with each other and to be involved in what goes on in the world, shouldn't we be connected outside of those people who are like us? think like us, go to church where we go to church. We, we have a responsibility to connect to the entire world. And I told you the story that we're going to talk about today, that this moment in Jesus's life is only found in the book of Luke. And it, it follows a long list of stories that Jesus told called parables. And they're stories that Jesus would tell to people so that they would understand that he was going to turn things upside down, that he gave people this new way to look at the world and think about themselves and their responsibility in it. And what's amazing about these stories is that when people heard them, when we read them, even today, this is true. In every parable, you would find yourself and you would find God. Luke uses the same structure of these parables that Jesus told in order to, to give us an idea about what's going on in the life of Jesus and this real man named Zacchaeus. It, it's an amazing thing that, that speaks to the gifts of the biblical writers. You know, you might ask yourself as we go through this story, how do we know that this isn't just another parable, that we aren't just telling a story? Well, well, so you know, Luke was a physician and a researcher, and, and he gave us far more detail in this particular episode in Jesus' life than he did in any of the parables before. You see, we, we know that Zacchaeus was a real man because he gave us his name. He gave us details about his appearance. He told us about this unusual action that he takes. Zacchaeus was humanized more than others in stories directly before or after him. But the structure is the same. So when you read this 
moment in Jesus's life, in Zacchaeus's life, you, you'll find yourself in this story and, and you'll find yourself in one of these places. You'll, you'll find yourself either like Zacchaeus, the crowd, or like Jesus. So as we, as we read this story, this moment in Jesus's life, I want you to sort of find your place in the story as people would have when they heard this story later after it was written down. Luke chapter 19 says this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I wonder where you found yourself in that story today. Did you feel like any of those spaces might be where you are today in your walk with Jesus? Maybe you need a little more information about the characters and the setting. Because remember, I told you that that this This moment is full of wordplay and deep history that gives us context into what's going on in this moment in time. I I love Hebrew. I, I love the fact that when you read it, there's this undercurrent of meaning to everything that the biblical authors said and wrote about. And, and for me, it even reflects into this story. And we'll, we'll see how it flows through every part of what's happening in this moment. And it starts with Zacchaeus' name. Zacchaeus' name is a derivation of the Hebrew word Zakai. It, it means pure and innocent. How many of you grew up singing the Zacchaeus song? How many of you learned this in Sunday school as a kid or your kids have come home and sung this song to you? I just want to use this as an example of how the understanding of his name flows through how we talk about and think about Zacchaeus. So I'm going to I'm going to warn you. I'm about to sing. (laughs) But I need you to participate. I'm really curious about how well we remember this song. So, so are you ready? I'm going to sing, and then I'm going to stop, and I want you to fill in the words that come next. Here we go. Zacchaeus was a... And a wee little man was... He climbed up in a... For the Lord he wanted to... And as the Savior... Wow. Your Sunday school teachers will be so proud of you. That's such an amazing thing, right? And so when we teach our children about this moment in Jesus's life, we, we teach them this, this simple way of looking at Zacchaeus, living out the meaning of his name. 
In this moment, the way we sing this song, he, he's pure and he's innocent. He's running after Jesus and all he wants to do is to see him. By the way, you should be happy. I didn't do the dance moves that go with this song. Um, but he's so much deeper of a character than that, right? We aren't as simple as just this simple action of the way we live our life. There, there are layers to each and every one of us. And, and I want to take a moment to just sort of dig in deep about how this idea of pure and innocence weaves its way through this moment in Jesus's life. It, it not only about our thinking about Zacchaeus from the way he's presented to us in that song, but it also reflects on where Zacchaeus lives. You see, Zacchaeus was from Jericho. And for those of you that have been in church in any amount of time or studied the Old Testament, this is Jericho, the one with the big walls around it. It was the first place that the Israelites came to when they entered into Canaan to, to take back the land that God had promised them. And there was this miraculous moment on how they conquered the, the city with people walking around walls and playing instruments and singing. And then the walls just miraculously fell down. But there's so much more about this city that we don't think about when we read this moment. This is Charles Spurgeon. He's a pastor and a theologian. And, and he had this to say about where Zacchaeus lived. Zacchaeus belonged to a bad city, a city which had been cursed. And no one would suspect that anyone would come out of Jericho to be saved. There was little hope of redemption for the citizens of Jericho. God could never reach that side of town. Doesn't that sound rough? Would you be, would you be bragging about coming from Jericho? But this is all part of the masterful working of wordplay and thought that goes into the biblical writers and how they constructed the Bible for us to have layers of understanding. Because, because in this wordplay, in this moment, and I, I geeked out a little bit reading this in context of language because, because it's, it's a really interesting point for us. Here we have this short little man whose name means pure and innocent. And he's from Jericho. And people who heard that in the day would have immediately thought, well, there's little pure and innocent from Jericho, right? And then it begs a question for people who are removed from this moment. They weren't in this moment, but, but, are, but are outside of it. And they begin to ask a question that some of you might ask today. Is, if there's little pure and innocent in Jericho, why would Jesus go there? Now, those of us that are fully devoted, we know why Jesus would go there, right? But for people in the day that didn't understand what Jesus was doing and people who were slightly removed from this story, they might have asked this question about what was happening here. Well, the text is pretty clear about why Jesus was in Jericho. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He had no intention of stopping as far as we knew. He was just passing through on his way to Jerusalem. But that whole innocent and pure thing doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with his name and where he's from. It also talks about his occupation. Because in the culture of his day, the occupation that he chose... The way that he went from being this wee little man to having a really big job that made him feel big would have made him anything but pure and innocent. 
Scripture says this, and he was a, there was a man there by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He was the chief tax collector. And in that day, it would have basically made him an unrepentant professional sinner. You see, he was a publicanist or, or a man who went to Rome or at least wrote a Roman governor for the opportunity to collect taxes for Rome from his own people. And it was worse than that. He would have hired tax gatherers who would have hired tax gatherers and they would have set up shop all over town and gone to businesses and collected taxes and fees and bribes and payoffs. And all of that would have funneled its way back up to Zacchaeus. And he became very, very wealthy because of Rome. He sided with the oppressors of his own people to become rich. So you can understand why people of their day would have hated tax collectors. And everybody in the community would have known who he was. And, and at every chance that he showed up, they would have tried to go the other way or at least not have a conversation with him. How many good thoughts are we having about Zacchaeus now? How many of us want Zacchaeus as our best friend? Ladies, how about significant others? Anybody stepping up to, to marry this man? What about a neighbor? Would he, would he be a good person to have as a neighbor? But there are people in this room that understand his position, right? There are people in this room who have something that they've done in their lives that separated them from their community. And it feels like there's no way back. It feels like there's no way that they could ever be accepted again. That they made a choice for themselves that separated them from the community. Maybe it wasn't this horrible thing. Maybe it's a hurt habit or hang up that we have that that no matter how we try to connect with people, it just seems to push them further away. Or maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe it's nothing that we really did wrong. Maybe it's just that we're one of those people that seem to just fade into the background. That We seem to be so small in the view of other people that, that we're never thought of as the life of the party, that we, that we wouldn't even be noticed if we weren't around. Are there any Zacchaeuses in the house today? Luke goes on and says this. He, Zacchaeus, wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. We really don't know why it is that he wanted to see Jesus, do we? We don't know if he was really thinking that he was going to meet Jesus that day or not. But something seems to have made him be really panicky about this moment. He was desperate to see Jesus. And yet he must have been really frustrated because, because his, his short stature and his status didn't really help him get to Jesus, did it? It actually played against him in this moment. He, uh, he couldn't get there. The, the crowd, he couldn't see over. And his role as chief task collector didn't just make them automatically move out of his way. But maybe, maybe 
he just wanted to be there so he could tell his grandkids he was there when Jesus came to town. Maybe he was like some of us in this room that were curious and a little bit skeptical about all these things he's heard about this man Jesus and all the things that he's done and he just wanted to see for himself. Or maybe he wanted something more than that. Maybe, maybe he couldn't put into words that he wanted the acceptance and restoration and joy that comes with being in a relationship with Jesus. Well, whatever the reason, he ran ahead of the parade and abandoned all sense and decorum and climbed up in this tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. Do you know people who want to see Jesus like this? But something seems to be getting in their way. Let me ask another question. Are there people in your life that you want to want to see Jesus this bad and something's in their way? Could you put your finger on what it is that stops them from getting there? I mean, after all, this is a grown man climbing a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. The crowd in Jericho would have been filling the streets, just like if Jesus was coming to Rochester, people would fill the streets to see him. They would have, would have wanted to have Jesus stop and tell them a story or feed them or heal them. And so we would understand that nobody was trying to give up their spot on the road, especially to someone like Zacchaeus. But there's a problem with that. If we're going to be the good neighbor that God is calling us to, if we're going to live into Ubuntu, shouldn't they have made room for one of their own, even someone like Zacchaeus? But they didn't. Instead, they chose to exclude him, and they excluded him for these reasons. His priorities were different than theirs. His worldview was different than theirs. Certainly, his politics were different than theirs. So as a group, they decided that they didn't need to include this wee little man. Isn't it interesting that in a city known for its great walls that were used to keep people out, that now we're in a city full of people who, twice that we know of, have kept people from seeing Jesus? I said twice, because in the story right before this, in the account of Luke, there is a blind beggar on the road, and Jesus is coming through town, and he hears the commotion of the crowd, and, and they, they, he asks the crowd, what's going on? And they tell him that Jesus is coming through, and, and he yells out, Jesus, save me. And does the crowd pick him up and take him to Jesus? Do they... Do they make way for him to get to Jesus to be saved? No. The people of Jericho turn to him and basically just tell him to shut up because he's in the way. And now there's this moment again with Zacchaeus, this, this little man that they couldn't move enough for, for him to get to Jesus. Before we judge them that harshly, are we, are we any different what, what walls do we construct to keep people, from see, people seeking Jesus from getting to him? This is J.R. Woodward. He's director of church planting at a group called V3 and author of Church as a Movement. He says this about walls. 
We have become good at building walls. We build walls between us and people that look different from us. We build walls between us and those who have fewer resources than us. We build walls to keep people out who are born in different geographic parts of the world. We build walls to protect our versions of the good life. We build walls to isolate us from problems and to protect us from pain. We've become experts at building walls. But God has sent us to build bridges. And that's exactly what Jesus did in this moment. He, he built a bridge. In this moment when he was walking through town and people were following him and wanting him to do things, he stopped at the tree, the one with the grown little man in it. And he said this. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Now, I don't know about you. When I read this, I was trying to put myself in the place of Zacchaeus, and, and, and I'm wondering what Jesus is calling me down for in this moment. Is it to, is it to call me out? Is it to, to chastise me? Is that what the crowd would have wanted in this moment? Would they have wanted him to call him down and and tell him that he was the sinner that he was. Put him in his place and then move on to the miracle portion of the evening. But even though Jesus had every right to chastise, challenge, and rebuke Zacchaeus, as far as we know, he never did that. What he did do made the crowd mutter and complain because he built a bridge, not a wall. He says this, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Can you hear it? Can you hear the muttering of the crowd? Can you hear the complaints that were going on in their heads, the arguments that were forming? Things like, why would he want to go be in the house of a sinner? I got here early so that he would bless my child or heal my relative. I, I thought he was going to save us from the Romans, and yet he's gone to eat dinner with a collaborator. This, this makes no sense to me. I don't understand why he would want to be with somebody like him when he could be with people like us. But it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense if we listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and apply it by not putting Jesus in a box about who he thinks he who we think he should be with, and let him do what it is that he called us to do. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says this: Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. This is Doug Logan. He's a pastor of an Episcopal church in Camden, New Jersey, and an author. I, I was introduced to Doug Logan reading Eric Mason's Urban Apologetics, and, and he says this. There's a lot of argumentative apologetics in our day, whether online or face-to-face. -face. Many well-meaning apologists have become so focused on argument-winning that they've lost sight of the goal of our overall mission, soul winning. 
It's not enough to know the Bible or the culture. We must also build bridges into the lives of our neighbors to find common ground. You see, whatever was or wasn't said to Zacchaeus in this moment was less important than the fact that Jesus stopped and saw him. That regardless of what his crowd of people wanted him to do, he stopped and he loved this man. He saw him as a human being. It was enough for Zacchaeus to to become the living illustration of what it means to be a good neighbor, to live out Ubuntu in his life, to, to demonstrate that to the people around him and the poor. The next two quotes bookend this story of Zacchaeus. One talks about where he was when this started before, and one will bring it full circle to the place where he was after this encounter with Jesus. This is Stephen Colbert. He's a comedian and late-night talk show host, and he says this. If this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, either we have to just pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are, Or we've got to acknowledge that he commands us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition and then admit that we just don't want to do it. Isn't that where Zacchaeus was? He was so concerned with with building himself up so that he had a place where he felt like he had a high identity and he gave his authority to, to Rome. And he didn't care about the community. He didn't didn't care what was happening. But his time with Jesus changed that. He says this, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This moment with Jesus was enough for him to change the story he was telling himself about himself. This is Suzanne Mimbe Matali. She's an AME minister and an author, and she says this about Ubuntu. Ubuntu enables mutual sharing and satisfaction and is illustrated in the biblical account of disciples sharing all they had with one another so that no one lacked anything. Isn't that where we've gotten with Zacchaeus? Isn't he in this moment changed his mindset about what's important in his life? He created a place of restitution for those that he may have done wrong. He gave away his money to the poor and gave his allegiance to Jesus. And because of that, this is what Jesus says to him. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It takes us back to this because all of this points us back to our thesis statement. The real question isn't who is your neighbor? It's, are you a neighbor? You see, this was true for Zacchaeus and his neighbors because he knew who his neighbors were before he met Jesus. He just didn't seem to care about how his actions and him elevating himself mattered to the community. And his neighbors surely knew who he was. 
But they couldn't even fathom that he might want what they had, that he might want to be wrapped into this community. He might, he might want their knowledge about how to live their life. Both groups were missing out on the true understanding of how to be a good neighbor and how interconnected they were. Because if they were going to be followers of Jesus, they had to understand that they were all connected and what one does affects the whole. And what the whole does affects people who are outside. And it allows them to come into the kingdom of God and be part of what is going on in a life with Jesus. You see, people who would have heard this would have heard different messages based on where they found themselves in life. For the outcasts like Zacchaeus, they, they would have heard affirmation of their right to belong to the people of God. For the community that was more easily set to exclude. It would have been a challenging reminder that, that God's mission is to come and seek and save the lost and include them into everyday life. For people with wealth, it could have been a model that perhaps was so ideal that was fairly rarely ever fulfilled where they would understand what it really means to convert. That, that your identity and your authority is found in God, not in what you have, not in the amount that you have, not in what the name or title of your job does for you. And so the question I have is, what does it mean for you today? How are we going to respond to Jesus telling us that you have to love your neighbor as yourself? And as you reflect on that, because it's not a Real easy question to reflect on, if we're honest. We need to remember that, that the presence of Jesus in our life makes possible what's humanly impossible. A wealthy man gets through the eye of a needle because he's willing to give up his wealth for others. We are able to love those who hurt us, wrong us, and community is formed between people who seem so different on the surface but are all the same to Jesus. And it all boils down to this for us. A good neighbor builds bridges, not walls. They love even when their neighbor doesn't deserve it. Are you ready to be a good neighbor? 